All right, as we do from Sunday to Sunday, we have an opportunity to hear uh, a word from the Lord, as is given to us in the Bible. And the portion of the Bible that we're dealing with this morning, it comes from the book of 1 Timothy, so that's in the New Testament. Uh, 1 Timothy uh, chapter 2, so if you have a Bible or device, you can uh, turn there. Um, also, we have um, the, the words of the scripture that we are dealing with this morning uh, on the screen um, above me. Today is uh, the Lord's Day, obviously. Uh, it's Sunday, but in terms of the secular calendar, our nation's calendar, it also happens to be, as you know, uh, Mother's Day. And, you know, uh, I think we come from a background or a church tradition that leaves freedom uh, for a church and freedom for a pastor to, to preach um, like today on what the Bible has to say about uh, uh, motherhood. We're not obligated. We have the freedom not to do so, but I'm going to take exam uh, uh, advantage of that freedom this morning and um, look at a passage that speaks about, uh, and it's going to seem a little bit strange to you, this passage. It only comes from one verse, and it speaks about childbearing. It speaks about uh, motherhood. And I, one other thing before we read, I, I think it's very easy, perhaps for some of us, maybe to, to kind of check out because we might say, well, you know, I'm not a mom. I'm, I'm a, for instance, I'm a single woman or yeah, I'm married. My husband and I would, uh, we just got married and we decided not to have kids yet. Or maybe you've been trying for a while to have children and providentially this just hasn't been the case, but it may be in the future. Um, you may be, uh, well, a child here, or you may be uh, a male, a husband, or a single guy, or what have you. We, we have all kinds of different, different people here. But here's the thing. We can all relate to motherhood because we all have biological mothers. I mean, we came into the world somehow, right? So we all have biological moms. And you may have had a great mom. Or you may not have had a great mom. Or maybe you didn't grow up in, in a Christian family. And quite frankly, your mother was either neglectful or she was abusive. But re, re, regardless of our background, the point of preaching is to say, okay, but this, this is what the Bible has to say. This is what the Bible has to say about, about motherhood and what motherhood should be. And we're going to be taking a look at that uh, this morning. So 1 Timothy chapter 2, I'm going to begin reading at uh, verse 1. And you're going to see in this part of the Bible, the Apostle Paul is a, kind of an old war horse in the ministry. He's talking to a young pastor, Timothy, about how to run the church, basically. And particularly what should happen in the context of worship and the role of men and women in the life of the church, in the context of worship. So, let's draw attention to it now. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all those in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, 
a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. A desire then in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet, now, verse 15, take a look at this last verse, because this is kind of the focus this morning. Yet, she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. And you step back from that, and if that's, if you've never read that text before, you're, you're going to be scratching your head, and you're going to go, what in the world is that talking about? It's kind of a strange text that begins with a singular she, and then all of a sudden it transitions to they, and you're wondering, who is the she here, and who is the they, and this childbearing, what does that have to do with anything that we've been reading before in verses 1 through 14? And so, this is a notoriously uh, difficult text. Um, I'm not going to get into all the intricacies and all the different interpretations, but I'm going to try to unpack this for us, hopefully, as Dave Vanlar prayed in the prayer, Lord, uh, give the pastor uh, boldness and clarity, and I would also add uh, accuracy, accuracy to that as well. So, we're going to be looking at that. Now, um, I want to I begin briefly with this. I want to draw your attention to uh, the, it's a little bit of a, a historical footnote in this sermon. I want to draw your attention to the 26th president of the United States. His name was Theodore Roosevelt or as many people just call him, Teddy Roosevelt. And Teddy Roosevelt, when, when he was a small child, and kids, maybe, maybe you, you, you kind of like this, or maybe you know of, of small children that when they come into this world, they're never really strong. And that was Teddy Roosevelt. He had asthma. That means he had problems with his lungs. He couldn't get enough air in. He had problems breathing. And he, was, he never had much energy. And it would be very easy for, for parents just to kind of dote on him and say, oh, you know, he's never going to be really strong and so forth. But his mother and his father, but especially his mother, didn't raise him in that way. She, she saw some potential in him. And Teddy, actually, he, he grew up to be kind of a man's man, a dude's dude. He, was, he, was, he grew up to be a boxer, he grew up to be a rancher, and he grew up to be a hunter. And if you do any background, and you can Google this, you'll, you'll, you'll read about his kind of hunting exploits on the continent of, of Africa. And um, to, 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 to give you just one example quickly of his toughness, and then I'm going to transition to his tenderness and related to motherhood. Um, when he was campaigning for the presidency of the United States, he was speaking, he was going to give a campaign speech in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and as he was ready to get up to this platform in order to speak, a man came out of the crowd and shot him in the chest. And aides immediately came to him and said, we, we, we need to get you to the hospital, and Teddy Roosevelt said, no, I think I'm okay, um, I came here to give a campaign speech, and people are expecting that, and as the reports go, he gave this campaign speech. It was between 60 and 90 minutes, all the while having a bullet lodged 
in his chest and, and, and bleeding. And as the story goes, before he began the campaign speech, he said to this big crowd, he said, I just need to inform you that I've just been shot, and so I need you to be quiet because I won't be able to speak as loud as I normally do. Now, could you imagine that? Okay, but that's, that's, that's what he said. And he, and he survived, and he went on to be the president of, of the United States. So my point is that, that Teddy, though he grew up very weak and his mother nurtured him, he became a man of strength. He became a man who was tough, but he was also a man who was tender, and he loved his mother dearly. And you can go online and you can look at a long speech that Teddy Roosevelt gave about motherhood. And at one point he said this, and A.V., can you put that quote on um, there? And you can follow along there. This is what he said. When all is said and done, it is the mother and the mother only who is a better citizen than the soldier who fights for his country. The mother who does her part in rearing and training aright the boys and girls who are to be the men and women of the next generation is of greater use to the community and occupies, if she would only realize it, a more honorable as well as more important position than any man in it. She is more important by far than any successful statesman or businessman or artist or scientist. Well, that should be a little bit of a pick-me-up for you moms here. Here's another quote that goes back to 1865, William Ross Wallace. I'm, I know that you probably, well, that you've heard this. The hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. Now, moms who are rocking that cradle when the baby's small probably aren't thinking that very often, but that, that, is, that is an honest truth. Now, going back to Teddy Roosevelt, you wonder if the current president of the United States, or in our case here, the prime minister of Canada, would ever say such things about motherhood in public. I doubt it, for the kind of pushback that they probably receive. But the truth still holds. The hand that rocks the cradle does rule the world. Meaning that women, and particular mothers, have an outsized influence, whether they realize this or not, have an outsized influence in the context of here, this church, the kingdom of God, and indeed the world. And that's what we're going to be taking a look at here um, this morning. Now, when you take a look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, it, it seems to contradict what the Bible says elsewhere about women and about mothers, because the Bible has a very elevated, especially in comparison to other major world religions, the Bible has a very elevated view of women. In other religions, sometimes women can be viewed as second-class citizens, but the Bible tells us that in Christ, men and women are equal in the sense that they share in the redemptive blood of Jesus Christ, and together through faith in Jesus, they are in right and glorious standing with God, and they are heirs of eternal life. That is a beautiful thing. In that sense, men and women are no different. We have that position together in Jesus Christ. And yet, I don't know if you've gathered this, but when we were reading through 1 Timothy chapter 2, this doesn't seem to elevate women at all. In fact, the idea that you get is just, just you maybe you see this thumb, and it's like, here's the woman under the thumb, and this is what the Bible is doing, right? And this is what the Apostle Paul, who is known in some circles as this patriarchal guy who is all pro-man and anti-woman, this is, this is kind of what he's getting at. I mean, for instance, take a look at verses 11 and 12. Let's just put the, our, our text in immediate context. 
Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. In other words, what this passage is saying is that in terms of the teaching authority, the official teaching authority of the church, particularly in the context of worship, a woman is not to be in the position of giver and doer, but she is to be a receiver. She is the one to enjoy that teaching. She is the one to appropriate that teaching and apply it to her life. But when it comes to doing it, God has reserved that not for women, but for men. And not just any men, but men who are qualified for that position. Now, it doesn't mean that a woman cannot do other things. It doesn't mean she can't pray. It doesn't mean that she could not read out of the Bible. It doesn't mean that she can not do other things, you know, in the body of Jesus Christ. Um, we know that as women here, and I'll get back to that in just a moment. But as far as the teaching of the church, officially in the context of worship, God has reserved that for men. Now, you might ask the question, well, why is that? Why? And actually, the Apostle Paul gives an answer to that. I want you to take a look, as you, if you look at the, if the text is up there, or look in your Bible. For Adam, here's his, his reason, and it's based upon what we call priority and morality. For Adam was formed first, and then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived, and she became a transgressor. Now, what is that really saying? Here's Paul's rationale for why women should not assume official teaching authority in the church, particularly in the context of worship. First of all, is an argument based upon priority. Eve wasn't created first. Adam was created first, and then Eve. Eve was taken from the man. And secondly, it's an argument based upon morality. It's not Adam who initially fell before the serpent was tempted and fell into sin, but it was Eve. Now, Adam fell only after Eve gave him the fruit, and that was not right of him either, but it was Eve who initially fell into sin. So this is a twofold argument based upon priority and also morality. Now, if you grew up with the Bible, you've probably heard this before, but if you didn't, or if you're new to the church, or even if you would not call yourself a Christian, you kind of read that, and at first reading you go, that is so weird, isn't it? And yet, and yet, it is the rationale that the Bible gives that is rooted actually in the very beginning of the Bible, what we call the created order. It is something that God has put in place, it is something that he believes is wise, and it is also something that God believes actually is for the good of the church and it is also for the good of the world. One of the reasons is because when women don't take on the teaching authority of the church, then the men are trained and the men feel compelled to take on the leadership of the church in a loving way and in a serving way in order to be a benefit to the church. Now, this is, this is, this is something for holy entirely different sermon. What I'm trying to do is set the context for us to get to verse 15. Now, one other thing before we get to verse 15, I think it's important for us to deal with here, and that is this. Here's a question that I think we need to ask ourselves, and that is this. If a woman is not to assume official teaching authority in the church, then the question naturally arises, well, then how can she contribute to the church? How can, she, how can, how can you as women here, I'm not even talking about moms yet, 
although you're included this, but this just take women in general. What contributions can you make to the church if you're not to be involved in the official teaching of the church in the context of worship? And I think this is an important question because sometimes I find, not always, but sometimes I find in generally conservative circles, I'm not even talking our own only, I'm just talking about other conservative circles and church generally speaking, it's very easy for a church to remain safe to say, well, this is what a woman should not be doing or this is what she, she should just stay away from rather than what could she be doing or what should she be doing. And you know what? When, when, if, if, if you're perceptive and you've been observing what goes on at Pathway, you realize you women are making all kinds of important contributions to the church. And to be quite honest, I think some of the contributions that you make to Pathway are oftentimes more important than what the men are making to Pathway in terms of hospitality, in terms of relationship building, in terms of how you interact and provide for us as males an example of how to interact lovingly with individuals. I think of your involvement in terms of mercy ministry. I think of our women's ministry in this church. I think of the mentoring that you do between women. I mean, there are many times where, where women can connect with each other in a way that I, as a male and as a pastor or elder, simply cannot. Some women feel uncomfortable with that, not because they think a man and a woman together, when they're talking about spiritual things, is inappropriate, but it's much easier for a woman to take something from another woman and feel less intimidated by that, right? So there's all these things going on. And if I can also add this, women do teach in this church. It may not be in the context of official worship service, but mentoring involves teaching. We have women teaching children. We have women teaching women. I think of the, um, uh, the women's retreat that, that you women had, and it really, really went well, I hear. And what did you do? You asked, was it three or four women to present uh, a certain, uh, to speak on certain subjects, three or four of you, and you spoke for about 20 minutes, and then that became the, 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 the basis for some really open uh, transparent discussion with each other. You women were teaching each other. So it's like there is more than enough work and a more enough influence that you can have in this church. And guys, you know, I mean, if, if, this church, if, if we removed all the women from this church and we just had men here, or worse still, just men who are trying to take care of their children without their wives, <laughs> really, well, yeah, you got that right. It would be a disaster, right? So that's... so so. We are, we are thumbs up with the women of the congregation, and it's worth a study of the Bible to say, hey, what have women been doing throughout redemptive history, and what should they be doing now? But, all right, enough said about that. That's another sermon. Um, but there is one contribution that the Apostle Paul, as he's leading us along here in talking about women, he, he leads us to verse 15. And here's a contribution that not all women make in their lives, or maybe some of you women are not making now, but you may later on. And that is the influence that you can have in the church and the kingdom by means of being moms. The bearing and the rearing of children. Look at verse 15 again. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, Again, what, what is this text really saying? Let's, let's first determine, and I'm, 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 I'm going to get into the kind of the more teaching mode of verse 15, and then I'm, I'm going to start moving into more practical matters regarding motherhood. <coughs> 
first of all, it's, it's good to determine sometimes when you read the Bible, not what is this text saying, but actually what isn't it saying? You ever do that? What is this text not saying? Well, obviously the text is not saying that, that you know, women are, and, and the word here is a form of the Greek word sozo, which means safe, so it's a very little translation. And what this text, verse 15, is not saying is that women are simply saved that is, from their sins, and put into a relationship with God just by virtue of bearing children. I mean, I hope we get that, right? Because what do you do then with single women? Or what do you do with women who are married but, but simply do not bring children into this world? Do, are we saying their eternal inheritance is compromised, that they're not saved from their sin, that they're not in a right relationship with God? Of course we're not saying that. Because that contradicts what the Bible says elsewhere about how we come into a right relationship with God, which is what? Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, for we are saved by grace through faith, not of ourselves. It is a gift of God. So whether we are men or whether we are women or whether we are children, we come into a right relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ and faith alone. Okay, so that's not, that the text is not saying, so, you know, that women are saved by childbearing. Okay, so what is it saying? All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you two options. I'm going to mention the first, and then I'm going to rest in the second. I'm going, to, I'm going to need you to take a close look at verse 15, okay? Here we read, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. Now, you notice there, and sometimes you just need to, to take a close look at the wording, because if you and I confess what theologians call verbal inspiration, that is that each word of the Bible is inspired by God and therefore true, then sometimes you just can't pass over the Bible real fast, right? You've got to take a look at the exact wording. So let's take a look at the exact wording. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they. Now you notice there's a transition from singular to plural. She and then they. So the question is, who is she? Now, here's, here's, here's a basic Bible interpretation. If you look at verse 15, if you're wondering who she is, you've got to put it right in the immediate context, which means the couple of verses that come before. And if you look at the couple of verses that come before this, you're going to go, oh, that's not so hard. That's, that's Eve. And that's right. It is Eve. And then you've got the they. Who's the they? So here's the first interpretation. The she here is, is the woman Eve. And she is the one through whom, ultimately, the Messiah, Jesus, comes into the world. Do you remember after Eve sinned against God, and then God cursed um, the woman, he cursed the man, and he cursed the serpent, who was the instrument whereby Eve was led into sin, okay? And you remember that in Genesis 3 verse 15, it's one of the most important verses of the Bible. It's called by theologians the Proto-Evangelium, that is the first announcement of the gospel of the good news of Jesus Christ. And here's Genesis 3 verse 15, where God in cursing the serpent says, I will place enmity, that is hostility between you and the woman, between your seed, that is your children, and her children, and he, that is the serpent, and the the children of the serpent, the children of the word, will bruise your heel, and he, singular, referring to Jesus, will crush your head, the head of the serpent. 
So already in the Garden of Eden, what you have is you have this promise of the Messiah, Jesus, to come, who originates with Eve as the mother of living, goes on through subsequent women in the generations, and it's this Messiah, Jesus, who comes into the world for the redemption, not only of Eve, through whom he originally comes, but all Christian women. And the reason why some commentators say that is because when you find the word childbearing in this passage, there's a definite article, the, referring to a particular childbearing, meaning the Messiah, Jesus. So that's one way of looking at it. And if you say, you know what, that's what I buy, I, I wouldn't argue with you. It could, be, it could be a possibility. Now here's a second uh, way of looking at this. And be, before I explain this, you need to understand that there is no minister who is worth his weight, who comes to the pulpit and likes the idea of, well, the text could be saying this or it could be saying that. We really don't know. We hate to do that because we feel the obligation to tell people this is what the Word of God says. But there are some, t- <laughs> there are some times where you go, even the best of interpreters are a little bit mixed on this. So I'm just going to give you a second uh, interpretation of the passage. So who is the she? Once again, it is Eve as the mother of the living. But instead of looking at Eve as simply the one who brings the Messiah into the world, as we look at the immediate context again, we have to look at Eve as the instrument whereby sin enters into the world. Sin enters into the world, but here's the thing. You notice in the text that it moves from she to they. So the they is no longer referring to Eve, but it's referring to Christian women and particularly mothers who bear children and bring these children into the world. So here's the understanding, and thank you for bearing with me here, but here's the understanding. Just as it was through Eve that sin entered into the world, listen closely to this, it is mothers who have the opportunity to lead the world out of sin and into godliness. And you say, well, how do women do that? Well, it's ultimately Christ by means of the Spirit that leads people out of sin and into a godly and a Christian life. But women are also, particularly mothers, are what we call instruments in the Redeemer's hands. They're instruments in Christ's hands who by bearing children and rearing children in the Christian faith cause them to be a purifying, beautiful, countercultural, and formative influence in the world. So that as these children grow up under the tutelage of their mother and the care of the mother, and as they grow up to be children for Christ, and as they grow up to be um, uh, men and women for Christ, And you say you are a mother who bears not one child, but two or three or four or even more. Think about all those children who enter into the world and who provide a light for Christ in this world and assume important positions, not just in the church and the kingdom, but in some cases in various corporations or just uh, workplaces of the world. This is like This is like sending Christian tentacles out into the world through our children. And that is a beautiful thing. It can also be kind of a depressing thing for you as moms right now because when you look at your little kids and how they were behaving this past week, you think they'll never be anything in the world. But that's not necessarily true because you have to look at the long game, don't you? Yeah, you got to look at the long game. Um, 
Some of us, as I said before the sermon, um, some of us grew up with really lovely mothers. And we grew up in rather stable homes. And, and some of us did not. Maybe you had just a really bad mom, neglectful or just worse still, um, an abusive mother. Maybe she hit you. Maybe she kicked you around. Um, but the encouragement here is not just to keep soaking your wounds. But the encouragement is to say, but I'm a Christian now. I'm a Christian now. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stand on the shoulder of my abusive mother or my abusive father. And I'm going to live for Christ. And I'm gonna, if, I have, if I'm married and I have kids, I'm going to raise my kids for Christ. It's going to change. It's going to change. I, um, I, uh, I had a, a wonderful mother. She wasn't a perfect mom. I, have, I had a mother. I, I, <laughs> I took piano as a kid, and I remember I was just messing around on the piano, and I remember playing a piece, and my mother would yell from the kitchen. She'd go, be flat, not be natural, be flat. She could hear I was off. And one time, she, I was sitting at the piano, and she just she got beside herself and just slammed right on the back of my head. It's like, get it going. Now, that's the only thing I ever remember negative about my mother, but you know, I'm sure I frustrated her. But you know what the lasting memory is? The lasting memory I have is when I was two or three years old. That's all it was. I'm sure it was. And I remember it was at night, and we're in a large living room, and my mother, I could remember, I, I couldn't have been more than two or three. She was rocking me back and forth, and she was singing, because I grew up in a musical family. And I, I remember she would sing children's songs, but I'm, I'm convinced she was singing hymns. And already, already she was doing that. And then I think, you know, Though going through a rough period, you know, look at what I'm doing now. You, want, you wonder when she was rocking me back and forth, has she ever thought, maybe this kid will be a preacher someday. Why do I bring that up? Forget, forget me now. Go to, let me give you an example to encourage you moms, because you never know what your kids are going to turn out to be. Um, Timothy. The reason why I bring up Timothy, because we're in the book of 1 Timothy. Do you remember who Timothy was? Okay, you know, the Bible in the New Testament speaks much more about the Apostle Paul, but Timothy is mentioned frequently in, in, the, in the New Testament as well. And um, Timothy was a co-laborer with Christ. Timothy was a pastor. He was a troubleshooter in the church. He was a, he was a godly young guy. And did, did you know this? I, I assume some of you know this, but maybe not all of you know this, is that, that uh, Timothy's dad was a Greek. We read that in the book of Acts. You know what that means? It means that he was not just a, a Greek culturally, and ethnically, it means that he was not a Christian. But Timothy had a mother and a grandmother, Eunice and Lois, and they were Christians. And we don't, the Bible doesn't tell us how they became Christians, only that they became Christians. So Timothy didn't receive any kind of example from his dad. And maybe you're one of those here this morning. You didn't get an example from your dad at all. And maybe most of what you got was from your mom. I'm sure some of us could say that, even if we came from Christian families, Right? And, 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 and Timothy was, according to church tradition, Timothy was martyred for the faith. Um, he opposed the worship of Diana, goddess of the Ephesians, and church tradition tells us he was, he was killed for that. Now, you look at Timothy and you go, you know what? His calling and his courage and his convictions, yeah, it didn't come from the dead. It came from his mom and it came from his grandmom who took the time to teach him the Bible from the earliest of years. 
And he went on to be the great figure that he was. How many, is, how many of us here either had dads who were spiritual no-shows, or maybe dads who were not no-shows, but as you look back, let's say especially we as men, when we look back and we go, you know what, I honestly, my dad, he was, he was okay, or maybe he was abusive, whatever, but the thing is, is we, we didn't get to where we are at as men today because of our dads, but because of our moms. And it was our moms who loved on us, it was moms who, who maybe spanked us when we needed it, when we were on the cranky end as little boys, or maybe it was our, our, well, obviously it was our moms who changed our dirty diapers. It was our moms who put their hands into the most disgusting of things when we were kids, and it's our moms who sometimes cried, and it's our moms who probably thought, what am I doing? And they look at other women who are so-called successful or have the perfect families and all of that, but they were the moms who stood by our side. And you know what? The love of, you cannot you 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 cannot underestimate the love of mom. That 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 continues. Not just when the kids and young moms, you love on your kids. Now I know that they can be pills, but you love on those kids because you would never give up on those kids. And then they become teens, and then you're challenged further. And when your kids are young, as one old lady told me in a former church, she said, when your kids are young, you have a multiple issues going on with your kids. And then when they get teens, you have fewer issues, but when you do have them, they're bigger. Right? And then, and then here's the thing, young moms, your kids are going to grow up, and Lord willing, they're going to be influential in the church and in the kingdom, and you know what? Then those kids are probably going to get married, and then they're going to have kids of your own, and you got grandkids, and guess what? The love that you put on your kids, you're going to put on your grandkids. Sometimes even, it seems even more so. Of course, the beautiful thing is, when they get dirty diapers, you get to hand them back to the mom, but you always get to love on them, don't you? And that, that love never ends. So, here, here is an encouragement, moms. And, and, and if, if you're a woman who's, who's married here, but you don't have kids, and maybe think, one day I'll have kids, it's a, it's, it's a simultaneously probably the hardest thing you're ever going to do. But it's going to bring you the deepest joy, too, at times that you ever know. And, but if you have kids now, man... You know, and even if you have a child who's not walking in the faith, we have that here. Your love as a mother never stops because your child's not walking with Christ. You continue to love on that kid. And you pray for that kid and continue that. Because I cited Augustine early. He was not converted till he was about 32 or 33 because his mother prayed like crazy over that kid. So don't give up. And, but here's the thing. I'll leave you with this. Moms, we, we need you. The church needs you. The kingdom needs you. The world, the world needs you. And you know what? You're doing a better job than what you realize. I know you feel like an awful mom sometimes. You're doing a better job. Look at the long game. Look at the long game. And then, um, now I'll leave you with this. One day, one day, um, not to sound morbid, but your life is going to end. You're going to die. And you're going to have your funeral. And um, you may have a large funeral, you may have a small one. And at one point, either before the funeral or after the funeral, there's going to be what's called the internment. That's a graveside service. And if you've ever been to those, you know what that's like. You have immediate family there, maybe a few friends. And then you have 
the hole in the ground and the casket is above the ground and there's a point where either electronically or manually that body of yours is going to descend six feet into the ground. And what's going to be happening? You're going to have your kids like this. You know, they're going to be crying. Why are they going to be crying? Are they going to be crying? Are they going to be crying? Because they knew that they had a mom who loved them. Are they going to be crying because they had a mom who invested in their souls? Are they going to be crying because they had a mother who pursued above all their preparation for the church and the kingdom and who prepared them ultimately for eternity? May that indeed be the case. I encourage you mothers in that. Continue to cling to Christ. Pray for the Spirit. And may the Lord bless you as you do the important work of mothering your children. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we come to you, Lord, I want to thank you so much for the blessings, oh God, of having mothers here who are committed to their children. Um, Father, we pray for them. We pray for energy. We pray, oh God, for resilience we pray for ongoing love especially those times when the kids maybe just are just besides themselves we pray oh father that you give them grace and that you help them to remember that indeed they are instruments in the redeemer's hands and that they are precious in your eyes and that you'll give them everything that they need to reel their children in the faith. And Father, too, I want to pray especially for those moms here whose children are either walking weakly in the faith or maybe, maybe are not walking in the faith either. Lord, we pray with them that you would work the gospel in their children's lives, that maybe this hard heart that one of their children has will be softened and that by means of that softening, they, those children, might be like St. Augustine, who indeed draws near to Christ in time, and not only draws near to him, but is of great influence in the church and the kingdom. God, we pray for this, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.